Hello and welcome to another episode of the Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine podcast. YJBM is a PubMed Index quarterly journal edited by Yale medical, graduate, and professional students and peer-reviewed by experts in the fields of biology and medicine. Today, we are presenting an episode that is a little different. Recently, YJBM worked with the Yale Science Diplomats, a scientific outreach group, to host an event centered around our recent clocks and cycles issue, which was published in June of this year. This event, Science at Brewery, featured a series of short, easily understandable talks about a topic of broad interest, in this case, sleep and the circadian rhythm. We are releasing a modified version of these talks here in this episode of our podcast. Our first speaker is Emma Carley, a second-year student in the cell biology department. Hi, I'm Emma, and I'm going to start off our talks today by discussing circadian rhythms. And our story begins with French scientist and explorer Michel Cifray. Now, Michel Cifray was just 23 years old when he stumbled upon an underground glacier in the Swiss Alps. Now, this was back in 1962, and, you know, science standards weren't quite where they are today, and he decided that he was going to go into this cave that he found and live there in complete darkness, completely cut off from society for two months and just try to see what happened to him. Um, and so he went into this cave, and after two months, he stumbled upon a really interesting discovery. He found that his sleep-wake cycle was actually still happening while he was in this underground cave, even though he wasn't getting any sort of input of light from the sun. And what he discovered was that the human sleep-wake cycle is 24 and a half hours long, and it actually occurs without any input from light. And this was a really, really exciting discovery at the time because many people most likely think that our sleep-wake cycle occurs because the sun comes up and it's time for us to wake up, and then when the sun goes down, it's time for us to go to bed. Um, and so this discovery was really revolutionary. And what Michelle Cifray had stumbled upon was one of our internal circadian rhythms. So we can start to understand what circadian rhythms are by first breaking down the word circadian. So circadian comes from two Latin words, circa and diem, which mean about and day. So circadian rhythms are long repetitive cycles that last a day for every cycle. And these cycles can be observed at the level of organisms, such as our sleep-wake cycle. But these circadian rhythms can also be observed at the level of the cell, which is the basic unit of life. All organisms actually experience circadian rhythms, including plants, who can turn their leaves in a rhythmic pattern in order to catch as much sunlight as they possibly can. So today I'm going to be talking to you about where circadian rhythms come from, and then I'll be talking to you about what influences our circadian rhythms. So to start off, circadian rhythms are endogenously generated, which means that they're internally generated. And for a while, people weren't completely sure if these rhythms were truly generated from within organisms, completely independent of any other factors. Um, Michelle Cifre's discoveries suggested that these rhythms were internal because he was able to have a sleep-wake cycle without any sort of input from the sun. However, 
there were still scientists who thought that maybe there was something else, some other external factor that was creating these rhythms, such as, for example, the gravitational pull of the Earth. And so in order to figure out whether or not our circadian rhythms are truly generated from within ourselves, scientists turned to fungi. And fungi, like all organisms, experience circadian rhythms. One of fungi's circadian patterns is spore formation. And so fungi will create a new spore roughly every 24 hours. And so scientists can observe this spore formation over time in order to measure the fungi's circadian rhythm. So in order to make sure that the circadian rhythm of these fungi weren't influenced by any sort of external force present on this earth, the scientists took this fungus into space and observed its circadian rhythm. And what they found was really exciting. They found that spore formation was actually still able to occur in space in this rhythmic pattern. The spores that were formed weren't quite as perfect as the spores formed on Earth, showing that you do need some sort of input from the Earth in order to have exact perfect spore formation. However, they still occurred in a perfect rhythmic pattern, which truly shows that even in space, these rhythms are able to occur and they therefore come from within ourselves. So now that we know that circadian rhythms are internally created, how does that happen? How can our bodies tell time to create these rhythmic cycles? So our bodies are all made up of tissues and organs, which can be further broken down into cells. And the cell is the basic unit of life. And like I mentioned before, even our cells have circadian rhythms. So our circadian rhythms actually come from inside of our cells. Cells are made up of four major macromolecules or big molecules. Um, that includes DNA, carbohydrates or sugars, fats, also called lipids, and the star of our story today are proteins. And so proteins are one of these big macromolecules that perform a lot of really important jobs inside of your body, including keeping time for our circadian rhythms. So the way that this works is that there are actually cycling proteins within your body that act as a clock. So in the middle of the night, your cells are full of proteins that indicate nighttime. As it, the night goes today, um, these proteins that are around at night start to disappear, and they're replaced by proteins that indicate daytime. Then in the middle of the day, there's no more of this nighttime protein, and your cells are full of this daytime protein. Then as you go from day to night, this daytime protein starts to disappear, and it's replaced by nighttime protein. So if the cell wants to know what time it is, all it has to do is look at the ratio of this daytime protein to protein that's around at night. So scientists can track these rhythmic cycles of protein levels over time in cells, and they can plot or make a graph of these cycles. And so what you end up seeing is this wave-like pattern of increasing and decreasing levels of proteins over this circadian time. So there are a lot of proteins in our body that can work together in order to make this circadian clock. And 
if scientists measure the levels of these proteins over time, they see these cycles that I was talking about, where during the day, some of the levels of these proteins are going up, and then at night they go back down, whereas with other proteins, they, their levels go up during the night, and during the day, they're back, they go back down. And so it's this very complicated network of proteins that all work together that create this circadian clock inside of every single one of our cells. So now you may be wondering, if every single one of our cells has one of these little clocks, how are they all regulated so that they all act together? Well, there's a master clock inside of our brain that is located in a region of the brain called the suprachiasmatic nucleus. And inside of the suprachiasmatic nucleus, there are a bunch of cells called neurons, which is the type of cell in the brain that sends information. So these neurons all have their own internal clocks, and they will create electrical impulses based on these internal circadian rhythms that they can then transmit to the body in order to coordinate all of the clocks inside of the rest of the body. So you can think of it as the suprachiasmatic nucleus is like a clock tower. And so if any of the cells in the body want to know, hey, what time in circadian rhythm should I be at? All they have to do is look at what's happening in the suprachiasmatic nucleus by detecting those electrical impulses or a few other types of signals in order to calibrate their clocks to match what's happening in the rest of the body. So now that we know that circadian rhythms come from these cycles of proteins that's regulated by a master clock in our brain, we can talk about what sorts of things can influence our circadian rhythms. So circadian rhythms are able to adapt to changes in our environment, and there are a few different factors that can contribute to this, and these factors are called zeitgebers or time givers. They can include things such as food, light, and temperature. But the biggest zeitgeber is light, so I'm going to be focusing on that for the rest of the talk. So light is actually able to change our master clock within our brain. So it's able to mess with the clocks inside of the suprachiasmatic nucleus in order to adjust our circadian rhythms in response to changes in light patterns. And the way that this happens is through a different portion of the brain called the pineal gland. And the pineal gland is able to make melatonin in the absence of light. So melatonin is a hormone that basically tells our body that it's dark outside. And so in order to explain how melatonin is able to adjust our circadian rhythms in response to light, I'll talk to you about jet lag. So I recently went to a scientific conference in London. And so when I flew from New Haven to London, my body clock thought that it was 3 p.m., but London is five hours ahead of New Haven. So outside, it was 8 o'clock p.m., and so there was this disconnect between my internal body clock and the actual time outside. And this is what jet lag is. And so a lot of people have been advised, hey, if you're going to travel, you should take some melatonin in order to help you combat jet lag so that you can sleep. And if you look at commercially available bottles of melatonin all over the labels, it says sleep health, sleep aid, promotes relaxation and sleep. So a lot of us think, hey, great, melatonin helps us sleep. But that's not exactly what it's doing. So in order to understand what melatonin is was doing to my cells after I landed in London, um, let's think about, 
Yeah. So what's happening on the individual cell level? Um, so when I landed in London, my cells were full of this daytime protein because in my my body thought that it was three o'clock p.m. outside. However, outside it was dark. It was nighttime. So my body started to produce melatonin. And this melatonin was able to enter my cells where it interacted with the cells in order to change more of the daytime protein into nighttime protein. So essentially melatonin shifted the amounts of protein so that they more closely represented what was happening outside of my body. And so basically what this means is that when I went to London, my brain realized that it was dark and it started to shift these protein cycles that are happening inside of our bodies in order to match the light-dark cycle that's happening outside. So melatonin doesn't actually help you sleep. Instead, what it's doing is adjusting these internal circadian rhythms so that the timing of these rhythms match the light-dark cycle that's happening outside of your body. So the next time that you pick up a bottle of melatonin, you can realize that instead of helping you go to sleep, it's actually adjusting the timing of that master clock inside of your brain. It's regulating the time on the suprachiasmatic nucleus so that the time on the inside of your body matches what's happening outside of your body. So I hope that from this talk, you've learned that circadian rhythms come from cycles of proteins that are generated from within our own bodies and that Inputs into our bodies, such as food and light, are able to influence our circadian rhythms by adjusting the timing of this master clock inside of our brains. Our second speaker is Ellen Corcoran, a second-year student in the Molecular Biophysics and Biochemistry Department. My name is Ellen, and I'm going to be talking about early birds versus night owls and the topic of sleep behavior so I always like to begin this topic by asking the question, are you an early bird or are you a night owl? And I hope once I ask this question, you immediately begin to put yourself in a category thinking I am an early bird or I'm a night owl or I am somewhere in between. And I really like this exercise because I think it shows that as a society, we really have already sort of an ingrained way to talk about our sleep behavior. Um, but just so we're all on the same page, when I am talking about an early bird, I'm talking about someone that likes to wake up early and that feels more energized and productive in the morning time. Where when I'm talking about a night owl, I'm talking about the opposite, someone that likes to stay up late and that feels more energized and productive in the evening time. And this ties in nicely to Emma's topic of circadian rhythms because if you stop someone on the street and you ask them about their internal clock and what their circadian rhythm is like, that it likely differs from, from someone else's circadian rhythm. And this sort of ties into the idea that sleep behavior is kind of a sticky topic because there are so many factors that can impact a person's sleep behavior. There are external factors such as your sleep environment, um, what's your sleep environment like, what's the temperature, what's the level of noise, what's um, the light conditions. There are also many other external factors such as your stress levels, um, what's your job work hours, things to that matter. There are also 
internal factors that are more intrinsic to who we are as people. What's our age? What's our gender? And something that's not often thought about, which is what's our genetic variation that is giving us a certain predisposition to a given sleep behavior. So the agenda of my talk begins with defining some terminology that we can use to talk about our sleep behavior and defining the word chronotype. The second topic of my discussion is the idea that this variation in our sleep behavior can actually be thought of as an evolutionary advantage when we think about the idea of sleep versus the environment and thinking about sleep as our vulnerability. The last topic of my talk is, again, what I hinted at earlier, that we actually have a certain genetic predisposition to a given sleep behavior. So as I hinted at, my first um, matter of discussion is defining some terms that we can work with and the term chronotype. And we can actually break down the word chronotype into chrono and type, where chrono in Latin is time. And this um, definition for chronotype is a person's propensity to sleep at a particular time during a 24-hour period, which we already talked about as, you know, being an early bird, being a night owl, or being somewhere in between. And I want us to all take a step back and to really think, why does it make sense that there's such a wide variation in sleep behavior in humans? And evolutionary biologists have done just that, and to really start to think of hypotheses as to why there is such a range of sleep behavior in humans. And there's a hypothesis called the sentinel hypothesis, where a sentinel is a guard um, or someone that takes watch. And what the sentinel hypothesis posits is that group living animals will share the task of vigilance during sleep, while some individuals will sleep while others will be awake. And this really gets at while sleep, it's necessary for our survival. If we do not sleep, we do not survive. But in in the wild, sleep is actually quite a vulnerability to us um, from, you know, the external environment and from predators. And so the sentinel hypothesis has actually been really well studied in meerkats and the idea that some meerkats will take guard and look out for predators while others will take time to eat and sleep. And so what evolutionary biologists suggest is that this natural chronotype variation is sort of a way to overcome the vulnerability of sleep and to serve as a sentinel hypothesis. And so Sentinel hypothesis was actually tested very recently in a group of humans in a 2017 study in the Hazda tribe in Tanzania to again see if chronotype variation can serve as a sentinel hypothesis. And the Hazda tribe was of particular interest because their lifestyle is not influenced by artificial zeitgeibers such as light or temperature-controlled buildings. And so to conduct the study, the sleep-wake patterns of participants were measured with actigraphs over a 20-day period, where 33 subjects completed the study, with up to 22 of the participants wearing actigraphs on a given day. And the results were really astounding, where the Hasa tribe was only all simultaneously asleep for a total of 18 minutes in a total over a 20-day period. 
And so this is really the first demonstration of the sentinel hypothesis in humans, and that this chronotype variation in humans can really be thought of as an evolutionary advantage. And now moving on to the third topic of discussion in my talk is the genetic predisposition of chronotype and really starting to think about how what's in our genes can influence how we sleep. And so to talk about this, I have to move from a genotype and what's in our genes all the way down to a phenotype or a physical feature. So at this point, I'm talking about how genes can impact our sleep behavior. And what I have to talk about here is that there are different subtle variations of genes that result from what is called a single nucleotide polymorphism or a SNP, and that these subtle variations in genes result in different phenotypes or physical features such as a given chronotype. And this often gets misconstrued by science media where you see articles publishing where there's, you know, one gene that's dictating your sleep behavior, such as, you know, having this gene may make you a night owl or the genetic, the genetic basis of your chronotype is linked to this gene. And when we think back to Emma's talk where we have all of these cycling proteins in our cells that are working in these complex biochemical pathways, it really makes no sense that this is going to all be dictated by a single gene. So I really want to mark this, um, this concept that we see so often in science media as incorrect. And instead, what we have to do as scientists is to do something called a genome-wide association study to identify the genetic factors of a complex trait. And what the GWAS study does is it looks for associations of these SNPs, these single nucleotide polymorphisms, across the human genome to correlate with particular traits, for example, your chronotype. And so a way to talk about, you know, how do we look for all of these genetic factors that influence a complex trait such as a chronotype is to think about this topic like making a cocktail. And just like you don't have one gene determining your chronotype or your sleep behavior, you don't have one ingredient making up a cocktail. And so my favorite cocktail to talk about is the Bloody Mary. And I really don't like the Bloody Mary based on its taste, but what I like about the Bloody Mary is it's the most chemically complex drink because you have hundreds of flavor compounds that are working together in these complex biochemical reactions to give the Bloody Mary its you know, unique flavor of salty, sweet, savory, sa a little bit sour, but not too bitter. And so just like it's not the vodka that's making this taste of the Bloody Mary, it's, you know, the addition of the tomato juice, the Tabasco sauce, the horseradish, the celery salt, um, and the list goes on. And, you know, just like there's all these ingredients you know, coming together to make the taste of the Bloody Mary. There's all of these genes that are coming together to give you your certain genetic predisposition to a chronotype. And just like there can be subtle variations in the genes that can influence the chronotype, there can be, you know, subtle variations in the ingredients that can influence the taste of the Bloody Mary. For example, if you want your Bloody Mary to be a little bit more sour, you're going to increase the lemon. If you want it to be a little bit spicier, you're going to increase the horseradish. 
and so on and so forth. And so, again, I want us to come back to the idea that in the genome-wide association study, what we're doing is we're looking at, you know, these SNPs and genetic factors across the human genome that are correlating with the certain chronotype. And there was actually a recent study that came out in Nature where they were looking at the genome-wide association analysis of chronotype in over 600,000 individuals to provide insight to circadian rhythms. And one of the plots from this paper that I wanted to touch briefly on is called a Manhattan plot, where this is really the crux of all of this um, genome-wide association analysis is shown in this kind of plot. And it's called a Manhattan plot because it looks a lot like a Manhattan skyline. So I want you to visualize it on the x-axis. They have all of the chromosomes mapped from all the way from 1 to 23. You have 23 pairs of chromosomes. And on the y-axis, what they plot is the significance. So different points on the genome will have a given significance of correlating to a particular chronotype. So the one that I pulled was from the different SNPs correlating to morningness. And basically, points that have a higher correlation to morningness will, you know, look higher on the graph and sort of give that skyline, skyscraper appearance. And so there was a lot of evidence that the natural variation in circadian preference can be ascribed to several different, different mechanisms. And they found several prominent genetic variations that can lead to morningness. For example, they found genetic variation near multiple core circadian rhythm genes. These are the genes that are encoding the cycling proteins that Emma talked about that are cycling in our cells and acting as clocks. But they also found something that was also really interesting, which was variants in genes important to the correct formation and functioning of retinal ganglion cells and how our bodies can be differentially sensitive to our light environment, and this can also impact our sleep behavior. And then finally, there are variants in genes with known role in appetite regulation and insulin and caffeine metabolism. And so what I hope you learned from my talk is, A, what's a chronotype, and that you can really use this word to talk about a person's propensity to sleep during a 24-hour period. Um, next, I hope I taught you that there, that chronotype variation can really be thought of as an evolutionary advantage for a given species. And then finally, I hope I have taught you that there is a certain genetic predisposition to chronotype. Our third speaker is Carrie Ann Davidson, a second-year student in the genetics department. Hi, everyone. I'm Carrie Ann, and today I want to pose a seemingly simple question, which is, why do we sleep? And when we think about this question, it's actually kind of crazy that we have to ask it at all, right? I mean, we don't have to ask why we eat or why we drink, yet sleep is just as fundamental a need. We can't escape it. In fact, we can live for longer without food than we can without sleep. And furthermore, scientists don't have a unified consensus about why we sleep. Instead, there are four main hypotheses about why we sleep. First is that it allows us to conserve energy. Second is that it allows us to form new long-term memories while we forget unimportant details about our day. And third, it is a whole-body restorative process that is absolutely vital to our human health. Finally, fourth, it is evolutionarily conserved. All animals sleep, so we do too. And before we get to why we sleep, let's first briefly define what we mean when we say that an animal is sleeping. We can define sleep as a natural, rapidly reversible state characterized by reduced responsiveness, inactivity, and loss of consciousness. 
We can use changes in the activity of our brain to more, to more accurately describe what we mean by sleep. Our brain is composed in part by cells called neurons, and these neurons form connections and communicate with each other through an electrical activity. We can, measure this electric, we can measure this electrical activity using a cap with electrodes on it. And these electrodes will record what is called an electroencephalogram, or more commonly called an EEG. This EEG is measuring the electrical signals in our brain, which appear on the EEG trace as waves. By recording EEG measurements at various times, we can see clear differences in the brain waves of people when they are asleep versus when they are awake. When we are asleep during the night, our brainwaves actually change such that we can define four different phases of sleep. And these phases cycle a couple of times uh, in a full night of eight hours of sleep. We can broadly define these four phases as rapid eye movement or non-rapid eye movement sleep. And it is during rapid eye movement sleep or REM sleep, that, as the name suggests, our eyes are moving back and forth rapidly, and we are dreaming. We're in a very deep sleep. And in fact, in most cases, we're actually paralyzed so that we do not act out our dreams. So sleep must be performing some pretty important functions for us to need to be unconscious for a third of our lifetime. Which brings us to the first hypothesis of why we sleep, which is that we sleep to conserve energy. When I first heard this hypothesis, I immediately thought of um, hibernating animals, but quickly learned that hibernation is not the same as sleep. Hibernation is a state that animals can go into during the winter in order to conserve a ton of energy when food is scarce. And the brain activity of these hibernating animals is actually more similar to the awake brain of these animals at times, while at other times during the hibernation period, the brain activity is actually so low that it can't be accurately measured. And what really allows these animals to conserve so much energy is that their body temperature drops drastically, and so their metabolism is greatly slowed. A fantastic example of an uh, animal who drops its body temperature drastically is the Arctic ground squirrel. And while hibernating, the Arctic ground squirrel drops its body temperature from 99 degrees Fahrenheit to 27 degrees Fahrenheit, which is below the freezing temperature of pure water. Like, that is absolutely crazy. However, for us humans in a night of sleep, we are only reducing our body temperature from 98.6 degrees Fahrenheit to 96.4 degrees Fahrenheit. And this is a pretty small change in temperature, which allows us to only save about 100 calories, which is as much as a banana or about a spoonful of peanut butter. Now, I don't know about you, but a spoonful of peanut butter is not enough for me to avoid starvation. So while we do conserve a little energy during sleep, it is probably not the main reason that we as humans must be unconscious for a third of our lives. This brings us to our second hypothesis of why we sleep, which is that we sleep to consolidate our memories. And this is very true. We do form memories while we sleep. The activity of our brain during sleep allows us to remove some connections between our neurons while we strengthen others. This process involves crosstalk between two areas of the brain, the neocortex and the hippocampus. 
The neocortex is where we store our long-term memories, and the hippocampus is where we store our short-term memories. During sleep, our neurons transport our neurons transfer information from our hippocampus to the neocortex for long-term storage. And while this process is very important, I'm still left wondering, okay, but still, why do we need to be unconscious and paralyzed during REM sleep to form new memories? The third hypothesis for why we sleep also involves an important function that we're able to perform when we are asleep, and that is restoration of our entire body. Sleep is truly vital to nearly every aspect of our human health, from our mental health to cardiovascular health, immune health, creativity, and beyond. Lack of sleep is a risk factor for a wide range of diseases. And this reason for why we sleep is so important that we will hear a lot more about it from our next speaker. So finally, we have arrived at our fourth hypothesis, which is that we sleep because it is evolutionarily conserved. All animals sleep, so we do too. Even jellyfish sleep. And this is pretty crazy because jellyfish don't even have a brain. They just have a rudimentary nervous system called a nerve net. Yet in 2017, scientists at Caltech published evidence in the Journal of Current Biology of a sleep-like state in the Cassiopeia jellyfish. The Cassiopeia jellyfish is a fun little blob that sits upside down on the ocean floor and pulses. So the team of scientists counted the number of times that each jellyfish pulsed over um, the course of a day, over a period of time, and then over the nighttime. And what they found is that the jellyfish pulsed much less frequently and less consistency consistently at night. And this fit with our definition of sleep being a natural state of reduced activity. Next, the team did an experiment where they picked the jellyfish up off the bottom of the tank and moved it to the top. These jellyfish really prefer to be on a solid surface, so when they're released from the top of the tank into the open water, they'll pulse to get back down to the bottom. When the scientist did this during the day, the jellyfish would, re would respond um, by pulsing after being let go into the open water within about two seconds, so they responded pretty quickly and brought themselves back down to the ocean floor. But when the scientists did this at night, it took the jellyfish three times longer to respond by pulsing. However, when the scientists then repeated this experiment with the same jellyfish at night, they responded as if it were the daytime. They responded much more quickly. And so this fit with our definition of sleep, that it is rapidly reversible, um, once the scientists sort of woke the jellyfish up, they could respond as if it was during the day, and that it's a, sleep is characterized by reduced responsiveness. It took the sleeping jellyfish a longer amount of time to respond to being let go into the open water. So now we know that all animals must sleep. We also must think about the challenges that animals face when they are sleeping, and aquatic mammals are a fantastic example of this. Animals such as dolphins and whales must stay in the water, but they also must breathe and watch out for predators. In order to solve this problem, dolphins do something really cool, which is that they sleep with one hemisphere of their brain at a time. This is called asymmetrical sleep or unihemispheric sleep. We can define this unihemispheric sleep by using electrodes similar to what I described for humans to record something like an EEG, a brain activity. So from these electrode recordings, sometimes we can see that both hemispheres of the dolphin brain show awake activity. 
while at other times, one hemisphere would show a very different pattern of activity than the other, indicating that one hemisphere is asleep while one is awake. And then after a period of time, these brain activities in the two hemispheres would switch, and the other hemisphere of the dolphin's brain would go to sleep. When the dolphin is engaging in this unihemispheric sleep, it's often described as seeming groggy, yet it's still able to swim, it's still able to go up to the surface to breathe, and to watch out for predators. Whales also can sleep with one hemisphere of their brain at a time. But at other times, some whales, such as sperm whales, sleep standing. And this is a really cool um, thing that whales do. I'd encourage you to look up a picture of this. These whales, such as sperm whales, will swim up to the surface, they'll take a big gulp of air, and then they'll slowly sink down to the abyss in a vertical position. And they can do this for about 90 minutes, an hour to 90 minutes. And then when they need to breathe, they'll wake up. They'll swim back up to the surface, take a big gulp of air, and then repeat the process. And they're able to get a nice deep sleep with both hemispheres of their brain. Mammals on land can also use asymmetrical sleep. As early as the 14th century, actually, Chaucer wrote about birds that sleep with open eye. And a great visual example of this is ducks, which can often be sleeping with one eye, seen sleeping with one eye open. But if you have all your ducks in a row, then the ducks in the center of that row will close both of their eyes, while the ones on the end of that row will keep one eye open to look out for predators. And this really links back to the sentinel hypothesis, where members of a group have different sleep patterns to allow someone to keep guard while others get a good night's sleep. Now, I really wish that I could sleep with one eye open. I feel like I could get so much more done in a day, but what is really crazy is that humans, too, can have asymmetrical sleep. This is especially evident when we are in an unfamiliar place, like a hotel room or a sleep lab. This was reported by a group from Brown University in 2016 in the Journal of Current Biology. Here they describe what they call the first night effect. The first night a, a participant went into the sleep lab, Scientists recorded the activity in their brain by a variety of different measurements, and they recorded the activity in the two hemispheres separately. They would allow the, patient, the participant to go to sleep, and then they would play some routine noises in the background. And at certain times, they would play what they called a deviant sound. And this is a sound that wouldn't wake the participant up, but may be considered as something they would want to watch out for. It was a deviant sound. And what they observed in the brain activity of the participants during the first night of sleep is that one hemisphere throughout the night showed less deep sleep activity the entire night. And then when they played the deviant noise, this hemisphere that was less asleep from the get-go also responded with a greater increase in activity to that deviant sound than the hemisphere that was in a deeper sleep. But when the um, team repeated these experiments the second night a participant was in the sleep lab, this difference in brain activity and difference in response to a deviant noise was no longer apparent. It didn't exist anymore. And so this, this um, phenomenon, this first night effect, can really explain why we may not feel like we got a good night's sleep the first night in an unfamiliar place, such as a hotel room or a new apartment. And while this effect is, is pretty small, um, it's still pretty amazing that we have some sort of asymmetrical sleep at times. Finally, I want to dispel one misconception about sleep, 
and that is that humans didn't always sleep once per day. In fact, before the Industrial Revolution, humans actually slept twice per day. This is known as biphasic sleep, and it could take two forms, such as a siesta, which we still see in some cultures today, or in what I like to think of as an extended midnight snack. And in this case, people would go to sleep when the sun went down, but then they would wake up around midnight and they would eat and they would drink and they'd play music, visit their neighbors. Then they would go back to sleep after a couple hours of being awake and wake back up when the sun came up. But it was really with the increase in shift work that we saw with the Industrial Revolution that allowed people to no longer have these um, extended periods to engage in biphasic sleep. And furthermore, Edison's light bulb was lighting up the night, keeping us up awake longer. Edison also famously said that sleep is a criminal waste of time inherited by our cave days. And I would really challenge us to do away with this thinking of sleep as a waste of time and really see it as a vital, beautiful, important process necessarily necessary for human health. I mean, it wouldn't be so evolutionarily conserved if it wasn't doing something pretty important. Our fourth and final speaker is Elizabeth Nand, a second-year student in the microbial pathogenesis department. Hi, I'm Elizabeth Nand, and I'm going to pick up where Carrie Ann left off. But before I do that, I want to put this idea in your head that Sleeping Beauty had it right. So why do we sleep? Carrie Ann talked to us about the first three hypotheses, but I'm going to pick up on restoration. And I think the best way to talk about restoration is to talk about what happens when we don't sleep at all. In other words, what would have happened if Sleeping Beauty had stayed awake that whole time? Well, somebody has actually done this. The world record for staying awake was set by Randy Gardner in 1964, and he stayed awake for 11 days and 24 minutes. Some interesting things about this was that he was 17, and he did this for a high school science fair project, because that's what everybody wants to do for a high school science fair project. But he did this in California, and... Some researchers in California caught wind of this and immediately rushed to study him. And in the paper that they published after the fact, they found that Randy Gardner experienced a serious loss of mental capacity. He lost the ability to speak clearly. He was irritable, couldn't concentrate, had memory lapses, literally hallucinated. He slurred his speech. He had fragmented thinking. He was paranoid. And he had reduced responsiveness. So Randy Gardner really wasn't doing so well at the end of this ordeal. But at the end of it, he slept for over 14 hours, and then the following night, he slept for 10 hours, and he recovered completely from all of his psychotic symptoms. However, in an interview with NPR in the mid-2000s, he revealed that he lost the ability to sleep completely. He attributes this to his ordeal when he was 17, This hasn't been studied completely, but it's clear that not sleeping for 11 days and 24 minutes is probably not good for you. This is supported by experiments done in rats. So in 1989, there was an experiment done on total sleep deprivation in rats. And the scientists put these rats on a spinning platform that was over cold water. And whenever a computer detected that the rats were going into a sleep-like state, the platform would start spinning, and if the rats did not wake up, they would be pushed into the water. 
And when I'm tired, I don't want to be dunked in cold water, so the rats experienced total sleep deprivation. And one of the ways that the scientists measured the health and wellness of these rats was by assigning an appearance means subject rating. And that's basically just the scientists looking at the rats and saying, does this rat look healthy? Does this rat not look healthy? On a scale of one to five, with one being this rat is very healthy and five being this rat really isn't doing so well. And what they found is in the first half of the experiment, the sleep-deprived rats and the control rats looked very similar. But in the last half of the experiment, the sleep-deprived rats took a steep decline into unhealthy appearance. And what's most astounding about this experiment is that all of the mice, excuse me, all of the rats in this experiment died within three weeks Unfortunately, this, the cause of death was not completely determined, but every single rat in this experiment died within three weeks. And that kind of brings me to the thesis statement of this talk, is that you need to sleep, and you're probably not sleeping enough. Sleep deprivation has serious health consequences, including obesity, diabetes, heart disease, reduced immunity, poor mental health, suicide, and shortened life expectancy. All of these we'll go through at least briefly in this talk, and we'll start with obesity, diabetes, and heart disease. But to understand the connection between sleep deprivation and these diseases, we have to understand why we get hungry in the first place, and that has to do with hunger hormones. So when you are hungry before you eat, your stomach releases a hormone called ghrelin. Ghrelin travels to your brain and tells your brain that you are hungry. Hopefully, then you eat, and after you eat, your adipose tissue or your fat tissue releases a different hunger hormone called leptin. Leptin travels to your brain and tells your brain that you are full. And in this way, your stomach and your fat cells using ghrelin and leptin tell your brain when you are hungry and when you are full. So that's in a normal, healthy, sleeping person. But what happens when you're sleep-deprived is that this balance is thrown completely out of whack and your stomach produces more ghrelin, your fat cells produce less leptin, and what this means is you have a ghrelin overload and your appetite increases extremely. So what this means is that you are much more likely to eat even though you might not need fuel. In addition, with this imbalance, given the choice between a candy bar and a salad, you are much more likely to choose the candy bar. And this is the crux of the connection between sleep deprivation and obesity, diabetes, and heart disease. Sleep-deprived people are much more likely to eat more and make less healthy food choices than those who are sleeping enough. Going back to that rat study, we also see the same effect. In the same experiment, the sleep-deprived rats ate almost twice as much as they were eating before they were put on the spinning platforms compared to the control rats who only ate about 20% more. So we can see that there is a clear connection between increased food consumption and sleep deprivation. Moving on to reduced immunity... We're going to do a very brief review of the immune system. So the immune system has immune cells and immune molecules, and together, these cells and molecules combat pathogens. 
Pathogens are things like viruses, bacteria, fungi, and parasites that could make you sick. But what's interesting is that sleep and immunity affect each other. So let's start with how immunity affects sleep. Immune molecules seem to have their own circadian rhythms outside of the circadian rhythm of the organism. So we've talked a lot about circadian rhythms at the whole organism level. But what's interesting is that recent research has shown that the molecular circadian rhythm, when these immune molecules are being released, seems to differ from the circadian rhythm of the whole organism. Furthermore, infections seem to promote sleep. And if anybody has ever had the common cold, they can attest to this. When you feel sick, you also feel tired. So these are some ways that the immune system and your immune reactions are affecting your sleep. But what about the other way? How is sleep affecting immunity? Well, sleep-deprived people have a decreased number of immune cells in your body. They literally have less cells that are responsible for fighting off these pathogens. In addition, sleep deprivation reduces general immune function. So this is a two-hit system where if you're not sleeping enough, you have less cells, and these, the cells that you do have are much less efficient at doing their jobs. And what this, the real conclusion of this is that sleep-deprived people are much, much, much more likely to get sick. Moving on to poor mental health and suicide. Lack of sleep correlates to mental health issues. In fact, trouble sleeping is one of the diagnostic criteria for depression, anxiety, and other mental health disorders. So while we know that there is a connection between mental health and sleep, what we do not know is what is causing what. Is it that mental health is causing sleep problems? Or is it that lack of sleep is causing mental health problems? This is still up for debate, and there's lots of research trying to tease this out. But what we do know is that sleep disturbance is a risk factor for suicidality. Suicidality is the act of thinking about, planning, or death by suicide. And what this boils down to is a concept called hypofrontality, which is the decrease in frontal lobe function. So the front of your brain is called the prefrontal cortex, and it is responsible for executive function. Executive function is things like problem-solving ability and the ability to make tempered rational decisions. When we see hypofrontality, that function is decreased. So what we see is a lack of problem-solving ability and increased impulsive behavior. When you have lack of problem-solving ability and impulsive, increased impulsive behavior, Coupled with other risk factors, we see a, serious, uh, a significant increase in risk for suicidality. And finally, we have shortened life expectancy. And to describe this, I'm going to talk about a very, very, very rare genetic disease called fatal familial insomnia. So this disease is caused by a genetic mutation, but it is very rare. Only about 40 families in the entire world carry this mutation. And what this disease does is it causes a progressive inability to sleep. So this starts with the inability of the patient to take a nap and progresses all the way up to the patient cannot ever sleep, ever. And this condition invariably leads to death within an, within an average of 18 months. But what's interesting is that the cause of death is actually organ failure. But this disease doesn't actually affect the organs. It only affects the brain. So here we see a very clear example of 
the lack of sleep and the disease affecting the brain has that leads to organ failure in these patients, and that's what causes death. So while we don't fully understand this disease, this disease shows a clear connection between sleep and restoration. So we're going to take a pause, and this is a lot of doom and gloom for a podcast, but there is a silver lining here. And that is that sleeping eight hours a night might actually be part of the resolution to these serious epidemics. You know, we've been dealing with the epidemics of obesity, heart disease, and mental health for decades. And honestly, we don't have fantastic solutions for these right now. We're working on it, but we don't have the answers. But what I think is a beautiful concept is that sleeping eight hours a night and prioritizing our sleep could put a serious dent in something that we don't really have solutions for right now. So with that... I'm going to encourage you very strongly to go home and get your shut-eye. And if everything that I've told you today doesn't convince you that you really, really need to be sleeping eight hours a night, just know that 60% of you would choose sleep over sex. And with that, thank you for listening to our podcast. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine podcast. We hope that you enjoyed this special episode. If you're located in or near New Haven, keep an eye out for future Science at Brewery events. Wherever you're located, keep an eye open for our next podcast episode, which will focus on our newest issue, Organelles. Thank you to the Yale Broadcast Center for help with recording, editing, and publishing our podcast. Thank you to the Yale School of Medicine for being a home for YJBM in the podcast, and to the Yale Graduate School of Arts and Sciences for supporting Yale Science Diplomats. Thank you to the YJBM editorial board, especially the editors-in-chief, Devin Washi and Amelia Hallworth, and the outreach coordinator, Kavita Israni-Winger. For more information on YJBM and our podcast, please visit medicine.yale.edu YJBM. Be sure to check out our journal by searching Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine at pubmed.com. Thank you to the Yale Science Diplomats, especially Hannah Weinberg-Wolf, a fifth-year PhD student in the psychology department, and the, and the committee chair of Science at Brewery for planning the live version of this event. For more information on Yale Science Diplomats, please visit their website, uh, sciencediplomats.sites.yale.edu, or check them out on Facebook. We'd love your feedback and questions, so please feel free to tell us your thoughts by emailing us at yjbm at yale.edu. If you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us on iTunes or share us with your friends. See you next month for the next installment of the YJBM podcast.